Hello and welcome to Health to Wealth, a series brought to you by Accor. I'm Annie Hood. People thought that a rest day from a gym was sitting down and eating. This is recovery. It is mindfulness. It is cold and hot exposure. It's infrared saunas. It's ice baths. It's cooking with your family. It's walking across Hampstead Heath with my little girl on my shoulders and with the sun in my face. It's an amazing, restorative, beautiful experience and is incredibly important and undervalued. Harry Jameson and Ollie Patrick are two of today's most highly skilled practitioners and visionaries in the world of human performance and optimal well-being. They've discovered a particular alchemy that brings expertise and inspiration together for fellow professionals, leaders and for individuals. Their depth of experience and insight into lifestyle management is second to none. Their collaboration includes Future Practice, an academy and learning community, and Pillar Wellbeing, a performance concept anchored to movement, nutrition and recovery. Between them, they work with some of the highest flyers on the planet, from world leaders to prominent CEOs. And as you'd expect, they are glowing with good health and high vibes. Ollie and Harry, welcome. Harry, let's come to you first. What are we without well-being? First of all, without our health, we are nothing. And I think that Ollie and I can both testify to having worked with, on paper, some of the highest achieving, potentially most affluent people on the planet. And the one thing that triggers that group of individuals is very much the concept that when you can buy absolutely anything on the planet, the one thing that you can't buy is your health. I would also probably argue there's another caveat to that, which is you can't buy happiness. And that's probably a little bit of a conversation as we develop. But I think we are nothing without our health. And our health is so multifaceted that just fitness is not health. We're nothing without community, without love, without relationships, without our immune system. You can't say that we're nothing without the use of our body because there are some people who have lost the use of that and have managed to strive through. So I think that gives you an idea of of potentially how we view what health is and we should revisit that. What about you, Ollie? For us, well-being is really the, the fuel that avoids people becoming unwell. When we look at well-being, we're really saying, what is the opportunity for the human being to flourish? Well-being is a platform for energy production. And that energy being physical energy, that energy being spiritual energy, emotional energy, mental energy. We can dive into that in more detail. But well-being is the sum of actions that we can take to drive more accessible energy and give us the best chance of our optimal output of well-being, which is happiness. I love it. Well-being is a platform for energy production. I love it. Pillar Wellbeing offers holistic, high-performance immersion for anyone keen to improve their state of health and well-being. Tell me about the problems you solve for people through the services you offer and how that has changed over the years. I've seen a shift in really the desired wellness outcomes of clients. And it started off fundamentally because people wanted to lose weight. And now we're seeing in in our demographic of clients, and by the way, wellness is completely democratized. The problems of somebody who is not in the the top 1% of earners in the world is exactly the same as everybody else's problems. And I'm not in the top 1% by any chance. But the idea that you wanted to have greater fertility, greater energy, better sleeping habits, better cognitive function and decision-making throughout the day, better athletic performance and whatever your chosen sport is, 
coming with a problem of anxiety, stress, depression, IBS. These are all things that we will bang back to the fundamentals, which is when you improve all the physiology that supports everything. If you have a garden and you make the soil as fertile as it possibly can be, whatever you plant in that soil will grow better. And so if your desired outcome is, like we said, you know, middle-aged facility, I want to have another baby. This is what, how do I do to help support my, my body and give myself the best chance of that? That's been something which has come to the forefront a lot more, especially as you know, executives have had babies a lot later on, just as an example. And I think that reaction times and cognitive function and the overall feeling of wanting to feel better probably a higher driver now than we've ever seen before. And Pillar's goal is to be able to manage one's lifestyle in a way that gives you the best chance of that. I love your garden analogy. Ollie, what about you? What kind of problems do you see and what are your solutions? I think that that is always the, the great question that, you know, we, we are not going to drop our vision of well-being onto people. We're going to provide the, the broadest array of effective well-being interventions and strategy. I think the common denominator would still be energy. You know, that might be a world leader saying, I want to serve out the rest of my term without falling over, without getting a, a burnout, which is a condition that, that's now got a, a full occupational health definition, despite not being a medical condition. But, you know, I want to keep pushing without burning out, or I want to keep leading my lifestyle without running the risk that one day I'm going to turn around and have a, a pancreatic cancer or, or something very much under the hood. So I think I don't think people are looking necessarily for a well-being journey. They're looking for a, a life outcome. And we're trying to use the most effective well-being interventions to enable that to happen. It's not, you know, these habits and behaviours must be adhered to or you'll be guilted. It's saying, actually, we're really interested in what are the things that most impact your physiology positively. And we've broken them into these three domains, how you move, how you nourish, how you, again, recover. But against your particular goal, we're going to find what it is you're not getting quite right and see if we can remove that and what it is you haven't added in and we're going to try and add that in. And a pillar is really saying that, that every day, you know, we each encounter hundreds, nay thousands of things that negatively affect our physiology from toxic air, toxic food, processed food, blue light exposure, etc. The path of least resistance for, the, for human physiology is to gradually degrade itself and then fundamentally fall over. So we've got to be proactive in our interventions, particularly as we age, to try and attenuate that or even reverse it. So we're going to use quality movement to say, okay, how do we use movement to get you your goal of more energy? How do we improve your nourishment, be that quality of the food, be that the pace at which you eat, be that the volume of bacteria or good bacteria in the food you eat? How's that going to affect your energy? And how is the way that you switch off and drive your body into physiological recovery, how's that going to affect your energy? So I think you know, we feel that we, across those three domains, we've got this sort of ultimate toolkit. And some of that's going to be environmental. We'll just do it without even noticing it. Some of it's going to be a tool you use strategically, and some of it's going to be embedded as a habit that you'll do the rest of your life, like brushing your teeth. You've both worked with world leaders. How important do you think wellness is to how our world is governed? I think we have a very, in, Ollie and I both answer this probably in a very similar way, which is that our global model to healthcare it's reactive. It's waiting for things to go wrong. Um, it's moving and shifting into a, a space where prevention is, is considered more than cure. But I think that is a shift that it's taken far too long. I think Ollie's you know, viewpoint, and I won't speak for him, he can answer himself, but he's spent a lot of time 
optimizing health. And I've spent a lot of time optimizing performance. But what has become very apparent through science and experience is that the behaviors that drive both of those two things are the same. So I get hold of a, a man or woman who, who wants to be top of their game every day, energized, strong, robust, good decision-making, good ability to bounce back from adversity, whether that's jet lag or whether that's in a, a crisis or whether that's a, a business problem. They need to do certain things. Ollie gets people who ultimately don't want to be ill and would like to live longer. The things that drive both of those two outcomes are the same. However, that type of behavior has yet to come really to the forefront when it comes to legislation and healthcare and strategy from the management of a, a global population perspective. It's still quite individualized rather than a society-wide behavioral change, which starts from the top or actually starts from the bottom. It starts from educating kids and and, and moves through. On that note, can I circle back to you, Ollie, and, and just hear from you what kind of understanding you think there is about well-being in the broader community? So I think health literacy is at a general, a sort of a gen pop level, much lower than I thought it, it was before I started working in it. And of course, particularly in well-being, we, we live in a bit of an echo chamber in the fact that, you know, the people I naturally follow online are all relatively savvy and I go to a, you know, a conference and I speak and everyone there is pretty up to speed. It was when I started speaking to groups who really, you know, hadn't been exposed to any health messaging at all, that we have to remember they don't know what a carbohydrate is. You know, there's no distinguishment between what we might call macronutrients. Sleep, it makes no difference whether you fall asleep blind drunk or whether you fall asleep in a perfectly dark cocoon. Your sleep is sleep. Food is purely about calories and weight. Exercise is about calories and weight. You know, when I started doing, doing more and more, you know, this is over the last 23 years, more time with populations who don't live inside a gym, the more I realized we've created a sea of misinformation. And what you've got now is people who have access to very narrow messaging that says, you know, using my example earlier, vitamin B12 is how you get more energy. Well, vitamin B12 is how you get more energy if the reason you have low energy is that your vitamin B12 is low. So for a particular population, who have a B12 injection, they will go on Instagram and say, oh my God, my energy has gone up 20% because they took their limiting factor and they increased it. If your B12 is high and you have an injection, it's, it's a total waste of time. So what we've got is, is people giving biased messaging that sounds evangelical and the, the gen pop following pieces of that in the most fragmented fashion possible. You know, Harry, much like I, we, we, when we start with the club, we'll go through a full questionnaire and, and understand them. And you're like, how have you ended up with this particular exercise routine and this particular diet approach and, and this understanding of sleep? And of course, it's dinner party here and an article I read on the internet here. There isn't a standardized methodology or host of well-being. And that is, again, really what we're trying to be. Now, the challenge with that is there's not one message I can give everyone that is true. So I can't say to everyone, this thing will affect you all in the same way because if for some people, it might change their limiting factor. For others, it might be, you know, another thing that they're doing on top of a thousand things. So we have to be careful that, that, that really the key to health is finding a line of best fit, but also context and nuance. You know, I, I find it very difficult to do social media because what if I put a post out about vitamin D and there is someone who has a toxic level and that affects their liver? What if I put a post out about sleep and someone's got a pure insomnia that all my tips and tricks simply won't solve and they need to go to an advanced sleep clinic. 
So I think mass messaging on well-being is extremely difficult, but I think some degree of better line of best fit. You know, we haven't seen a real adaptation to three to five exercise sessions a week, five portions of veg, seven to nine hours that connects with the average person because they're seeing these exciting messages and that doesn't feel sexy or, or modern enough. So a slightly revised line of best fit, but coaches able to find what is the one thing that's going to be your limiting factor. That's what excites me. Given that lack of knowledge amongst the general population, Ollie, let's circle back to the question about how our world is governed. How should world leaders prioritise well-being in a way that engages it more urgently for people? You've got to transpose well-being into economic benefit, you know, first and foremost. You know, I think anyone at the top of an organisation will feel a duty of care for, for their people, but they'll also be held accountable to the numbers that are recorded. It's a great challenge because we have a glowing, you know, diabetes crisis, this combination of obesity with development of adult onset or now, you know, type 2 diabetes, which is an enormous drain on any global nation's healthcare resources. It's going to be very difficult to justify spending on activities that would be perceived as more lifestyle, more well-being-esque in the face of a growing burden of cost in the health domain. I.e., we know, I mean, we know if people move more, there's, a, there's an impact on health costs. We know if people nourish better, there's an impact on health costs. We know if people sleep better, there's an impact on health costs. We know if people have a less toxic environment, be that polluted air, polluted water, cleaner food, has an impact on health. We know if we manage mindset, that has an impact on what is now the biggest cost to organizations, certainly stress and stress resilience. So we know that it's there, but we can't mathematically prove it in the same way as I can prove that but building a new hospital will, will impact on the healthcare of my nation. We also have this enormously difficult piece from a leadership point of view, which is I have to motivate everyone on an individual basis to change. From a reactive healthcare perspective, once someone is ill, you know, and ill is a very difficult word, once someone is dysfunctional, let's say, they have all the incentive in the world to move their health from a state of dysfunction to non-dysfunction. And they will have the resources, be that medical institutions, uh, pharmaceutical drugs, to bring them from ill to less ill. To take someone who's not yet dysfunctional to a higher state of functionality, as in true prevention, requires them to, to be motivated to do so. You know, the government can increase its ability to do knee replacements, but how does it encourage people to move more, nourish better, recover better? That's a great conundrum. I think one additional piece to, to wrap up the answer would be, you know, when we look at the corporate wellbeing model, certainly within, within Pillar, we know the actions and behaviours of the leadership team is, is a ripple-down effect. It's very difficult for us to put a gym into an organization, improve the eating, and improve the ability to rest and recover if the leadership don't embed a clear model of that and make it culturally part of what goes on. Well-being can't be an afterthought in any healthcare strategy. It has to be at the very core of it. Otherwise, it has very limited chance of, of effectiveness. Let's take a moment here to reflect on the importance of culture when it comes to implementing a well-being strategy, both from governments and in the corporate world. What Ollie's been talking about is endorsed by nutrition and wellness expert Kate Cook. Kate has helped thousands of people adopt a healthier lifestyle from her Harley Street clinic. And over the last 10 years, her focus has been on delivering corporate well-being programs. For Kate, well-being only works if it comes from the top down is getting into the C-suite because if you don't have that cultural, it's like a piece of Brighton rock. If you don't have that writing throughout the company, then it is a very tick box exercise. 
but they're not really embedded in it. You know, it's fun and it's great and it's we have a good time, but it isn't really changing anything strategically, which I think, by the way, is a problem with well-being in companies or has a capacity to be like that for all programs within companies. Unless you audit it, you won't know what you're looking for. And unless you measure it, you won't know if you've been successful. So as I was saying, the C-suite is an important part. Are they just introducing something, you know, for fun? And that, and by the way, there's huge merit in that. We, are we nice people? We're going to do this fun nutrition thing, or we're going to get this crazy lady in to do a bit of nutrition. Uh, or it can be much more strategic. You know, they're, they're basically auditing the issue, um, then putting in the program and then measuring it afterwards. And then it can be people going straight to the C-suite and coaching those people to, to care about the performance nutrition in effect, making a difference, them seeing that they can be transformed, switching on a light which says this should be taken throughout the company. And, and once you've got that culture in, it's much easier to get the whole company embedded within it. Inspiring people to have healthy diets, inspiring them on the nutrition, can turn on something amazing and wonderful within the company, which we can measure. So, you know, what's not to like? What's not to like indeed? Kate champions nutrition as the foundation for well-being. For Ollie, it's all about the overall culture in a workplace that's important, including mental health. And as you'll hear, in Ollie's experience, well-being has become more of a priority for companies in recent years too. Well-being has suddenly moved from agenda point four on a board meeting minutes to, to two or even one. So there's been a, there's been a business shift without a doubt that people have recognized the, the crucial importance of well-being and particularly their well-being to underpin mental health. You'll have more effective well-being strategy if your senior leadership team believe in well-being. They adhere to, again, respectful workloads, respectful times, you know, provision of, of, of boundaries around lunch. Uh, accessibility of, or visualizing of movement and exercise. Then if you put an incredible high spec gym in that everyone feels absolutely terrified to go and visit because it isn't within the culture of the organization. One of the biggest challenges I see in the wellbeing space is people having the ability to pay for it. What should businesses and governments be doing to open up access to wellbeing for all? Because that's the critical thing, isn't it? It's making it mainstream getting it to grassroots. Harry, what's the best way for people to access well-being if they can't afford it? Really, the things that you can optimise your well-being via are free. You do not have to go to an expensive, high-end Manhattan fitness facility to access running or stretching or breathing or sleeping. And those are the foundations of, of human performance. I think really the thing that underpinned it, and I'll just talk from a personal perspective, was when I really got my head around recovery is not doing nothing. People thought that a rest day from a gym was sitting down and eating. This is, re this is recovery. Recovery is driving the reduction of inflammation. It is mindfulness. It is cold and hot exposure. It's infrared saunas. It's ice baths. It's manifestation. It's cooking with your family. It's walking across Hampstead Heath with my little girl on my shoulders and with the sun in my face. It's an amazing, restorative, beautiful experience and is incredibly important and undervalued. For me, the thing that underpins all of well-being is your body's ability to recover. And especially as I've got older, 
I thought that how hard I flogged myself in the gym and by default flogged some of my clients, you know, which sometimes gave me more pleasure than flogging others, um, was, was, was really, you know, the fundamentals of it. Harder is, more is, more is better and harder is better. And, you know, pushing through mentally means that you'll be a bit more robust at the end of it and a bit of, you know, stiff upper lip and, and, and that's how you build resilience. So I think to, to, and, and really the, what underpins all of that is, 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 is knowledge. And we've got open source information, which is available to us all. Unfortunately, you know, big open source platforms, social media platforms are not censored properly. So lots of the information is either brand led, i.e. buy my product because it will make you better, or it is kind of based upon the following of the individual who's saying it. I'm a model. I look good. This is what I do. This is what you should do. You know, I don't know many sleep doctors who are also Instagram influencers or models. <laughs> so there's often a disconnect between the, you know, the realities and the facts. So businesses and, 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 and your question before was about how businesses and governments can, you know, democratize wellness It is about the spread of really high quality information to those who are willing to receive it. The one thing I'll add to that at the end is you do need a certain level of personal motivation, drive and, and education to put some changes into your life. Because if you continue to do the things that are easy and you know, the, the expression, easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life are very true. I can make some very easy decisions to not go and exercise and to eat cheap, fast food, or I can make some slightly more challenging ones to look up a more interesting recipe, regardless of budget of ingredients, and to get up and go for a, for a little run, even though it might be raining. The knock-on effect of that is that I feel more energized and my life is better and my physiology is better and I'm happier. And so sometimes I think a potentially unpopular thing to say is a little bit of tough love is sometimes also useful, but tough love backed with great education, backed with the opportunity to, to go and do things together. Wellness is actually a community. And I think to be part of a community of people who view health and well-being is so important and so useful. And lots of people are feel, I think, feel quite isolated and intimidated. So I think that the biggest opportunity out there is an education opportunity. Thank you for listening to Health to Wealth from Accor. This podcast is supported by Technogym, a brand that's all about helping you improve your lifestyle and your performance. 30 years ago, Technogym defined wellness as a lifestyle, including regular exercise, healthy nutrition and a positive mental approach. They develop products and technologies to make exercise more inclusive and effective for everyone. They're at the cutting edge of high performance technology and on a mission to improve your health and the health of the planet through the spirit of Technogym. We, all of us, no matter what our financial or educational circumstances, we struggle to experience wellness if we experience stress. We all think we know what stress is, but what do you mean when you talk about stress resilience from your perspective? I can give my version first, which is probably from a performance perspective. And, then, and, I, and I think Ollie can chip in, you know, like he likes to do on the one that stops you from dying. 
So I'll, I'll go on the one that makes you a bit happier and healthier and he can go on the one that stops you, uh, that stops you developing a terrible chronic disease. Um, so from a performance perspective, one of the first things to understand is that not all stress is bad. Okay. Some stress is good. Let's think about sports performance for, for example, and I often like the, you know, Usain Bolt on the hundred meter start line, as an example, we'll remember him doing his amazing sort of hand gestures and, and egging on the crowd. And the idea that he's not stressed at that time or not nervous at that time is, is not true. He's an unbelievable capacity to challenge that situational stress and environment into what we would consider to be an optimal performance. And we can consistently look across lots of other high-performing sportsmen and women from the Williams sisters to Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods and, and Lewis Hamilton. They use that fuel as fire. Now, if you think about a curve that goes up and the stress is at the, you know, stress is on one axis and performance is on the other, there is a point in which you will tip over the edge and that's your capacity to generate a good performance from that stress is exceeded. We would quite simply know it as, you know, my nerves got the better of me and I didn't quite deliver what I was supposed to do and it tips over the edge. So if you think about your capacity to deal with stress or your resilience to stress as a bucket and, and this actual stress is, as water coming out of a tap. You, water keeps coming, keeps coming into the point where it's going to spill over the edge. If you're going to be a high performer, you need a bigger bucket, you know, because that stress isn't going anywhere. In some cases, removing some of those stressors is, is a necessary evil, but I'm speaking for myself as an entrepreneur, as a coach, as a father. My businesses aren't going anywhere. My kids aren't going anywhere. My bank balance isn't getting much better. You know, so I need to be able to deal with those things. And, and actually the way that I view the world and how I look at things, you know, batten past Ollie, because I'll finish with something about disease. <laughs> Pessimists are more likely to have heart attacks than optimists. If you view the world in a positive way, you are more likely to be healthier, happier, and to live longer. I'm not saying blindly go through life you know, smiling, at the, uh, smiling at the sky, but I genuinely believe that, that having a real ability to reframe challenges as positive opportunities to do something better, probably one of the key things in, in, that I've seen in the people who have consistently managed stress well, and the people who have consistently stayed at the top of their game over a long period of time. Thanks, Harry. Ollie, take it away. Stress in scientific terms, please. Yeah, I can't believe I'm being painted as the disease guy. I mean, I'm, <laughs> you know, it's a nightmare. But, but of course, let me start with disease. <laughs> in the fact, you know, it was in the 1930s that an endocrinologist stressed rats and he found that in those rats, they had stomach ulcers. They had an increased size of their adrenal gland that produced cortisol and adrenaline. He found that their thyroid gland had wasted away. It was what was called atrophied. And the stress he was giving them was a psychological stress. So nothing he had done would have caused those physical things. And why that's relevant, his name's Hans Selye. He, he basically turned stress from being a psychological issue into a physical issue. So chronic stress, and the word is wrong. I mean, Harry's 100% right. You know, we've got these different types of stress. Stress is the lifeblood of performance. You know, without it, we lead a very dull lifestyle. Human growth comes from discomfort, be that weight training to rip a muscle to grow it, be that taking on a job that's too big for me and growing into it. You know, discomfort is growth physiologically. 
But if that discomfort, if that state Harry's talking about where someone's tipped over into the volume of pressures has now exceeded their ability to cope for a sustained period of time, there will be biological repercussions for that, which will start in an absence of correct physiological recovery. So on a very, you know, without turning this into biology and everyone logging off frantically, we can measure internal nervous system activity to say how often someone is stressed, as in a, in a physiologically stressed state, be that fight or flight, and how often someone's in a physiologically recovered state, and be that rest and digest. And there's actually, interestingly, a nervous system inside your body that's, that's watching the way you view the world. If I've watched the news, my physiology increases the activation of my stress state, and it prepares me to do something physical and dynamic, which I won't do because I'm sat in front of my TV. If Harry turns up at the office with a, a plate of freshly baked cookies and, and puts on a bit of Enya, my senses recognize that and my, my biology adjusts, right? it slows down. I get a reduced heart rate. I get blood going from my muscles now to my stomach and I prepare to recoup energy. And physiologically, we've seen a sort of fascinating pattern. Both of us have been measuring this for years with our clients. Um, certainly discussions we used to have around stress. I used to think people were too stressed. When I first started working with executives, they must be super stressed, having all these fight or flight reactions all the time. When you look closer at the physiology, it doesn't look like too much stress. It looks like inadequate recovery because the absence of recovery physiologically is the same as too much stress. These nervous systems, they compete for my heart rate. So a more physiologically stressed person will have a higher resting heart rate, higher blood pressure, reduced digestive secretions. They'll have a predisposition for inflammation, a whole range of things that I could actually see rippling up into um, more stomach acid, and that needs treating with a medication or higher blood pressure, that gets treated with a beta blocker, or decreased sleep recovery, that gets treated with caffeine. The absence of physiological recovery is a platform for dysfunction on a simple basis. On a technical term, we call that parasympathetic tone, the body's ability to go into this rest and recovery. So how can you tell if you're not getting recovery? So energy, again, becomes our key barometer. So what, what does that system do? It's rest and digest. So the absence of sufficient time, as in physical time spent in parasympathetic tone, will mean an absence of recovery. So the biggest thing we'll notice there would be um, the person may not feel refreshed after waking. So sleep cycling has probably not done what it needs to do. We know that nervous system is deeply intertwined with digestion. So will we see some form of digestive discomfort? You know, may not be as acute as IBS, but could be excessive flatulence, could be poor digestion, could be a range of things. We would see the person with reduced libido. So libido, energy, my immunity. You know, if I get that balance wrong, I'll be the one in the office who picks up the cold and the flu. It will, it will be actually the mediator of most of the things people complain about. And, and the reason we're passionate about this is because we've got someone giving you the immune solution here and the sleep solution there and the digestive solution here. If we can modulate more physiological recovery, and let me translate, if I can put your body into parasympathetic tone for more of a 24-hour period, I can expect benefit X, and you just put in the X, whatever it is you came to me worried about. It should also just add into that, that what we often see in people who are under-recovered is a dependency on, on, on artificial stimulants to give them that recovery. If you're somebody who has six coffees before midday and is always tired in the morning, the morning you should be the least tired you are throughout the whole day. So if you need that level of caffeine to wake you up and potentially, you know, that level of alcohol at the end of the day to knock you back out, that's often a sign, substance addiction aside, that's often a sign that 
the physiological recovery isn't taking place mostly during the hours of sleep that you would need. We see that a lot. And I think that it's often masked as, I just really like coffee and just don't sleep that well. And I think people become very, very, I wouldn't say comfortable, but they become very used to chronically being exhausted. And is there a golden nugget for reducing stress? And if there is, what is it? If we were taking the thing most people get wrong that accelerates stress is caffeine, which is chemically equivalent to adrenaline, which you make too much of, and alcohol, which is the greatest trick you know, that the marketing world ever, ever produced in the fact that it's a muscle relaxant. So it makes you feel relaxed at the end of the day, but neurologically, it acts like a stimulant. So fatigue, let's, let's bear in mind, fatigue is a signal from your body you've got something wrong. So I, I need to listen to those signals. If my blood pressure is going up, that's a signal. It was an early warning sign. So caffeine and alcohol, absolutely integral. You know, Harry and I would probably see the two things that, that surprised us most is taking someone from relative inactivity to activity creates an enormous volume of parasympathetic tone. The human machine is the only thing that you give it more in it and it gets better at it. That's one of the reasons why fitter people have a slower heart rate. It's more parasympathetic tone. And the second thing would be meditation, Harry, because mm. when you do it right, it drives breathing. Breathing drives parasympathetic tone. You know, these new fads are not coming out of nowhere. That could be the transformative thing for your physiology and that could be the transformative thing to, to what it is you're worried about. I was skeptical on meditation as a sort of hobby-esque, a very light touch intervention. And now it's right up there with, you know, eating a good diet and exercising. Some fantastic takeaways from Ollie and Harry there when it comes to achieving optimal well-being. Ollie mentioned that when he first started working with executives, he thought there must be more stress than everyone else, when actually what they were really experiencing was an absence of recovery. High performance is going to be very hard to achieve if, to use Harry's analogy, you're drawing on a bucket of water that's already overflowing. Next time in the Health to Well series, you're going to hear from Ali Burns. Ali is the CEO of Village Capital, a global venture capital firm that finds, trains and invests in entrepreneurs who are solving real world problems. Let's hear Ali's take on the importance of well-being in the workplace for CEOs, for employees, and for entrepreneurs. I'm starting to see a change in not just talk, but action on that front and really encouraging people to seek out self-care. You're seeing more and more founders from all sorts of backgrounds talk about the importance of self-care and well-being as a business strategy. Um, to take care of yourself and your employees means you have the health to become a better business. I think it's a really important conversation to be had as a not only to say it's important for us as an investor to make sure you as an entrepreneur are prioritizing your own well-being, but also modeling that behavior as well. You know, there's so much research that demonstrates that it's not only about encouraging with your teams, for example, to take time off, to engage in self-care, but if you're not modeling that behavior, that means you're sending Slack messages and emails at whatever crazy hour. So as an investor to model that behavior, to showcase that you also don't have that implicit expectation, you know, sort of the, the mismatch of what you say versus what you do. I don't think it's a conversation that's happening uh, very often. If we're glorifying that the only way to, to start and scale a business is to hustle 24 seven, then we're not taking care of the people who could be bringing really exciting change to this world. 
Ali really endorses what Ollie and nutritionist and wellness expert Kate Cook say about the importance of well-being as a culture in the workplace and the fact that that needs to come from the top down. Ollie and Harry are both all about human performance through different perspectives. You've heard them talk about their respective evidence-based approach, but as you'll hear, when it comes to well-being, there's one aspect that's more difficult to quantify, and it's all about personal connection and spiritual values. I think as a physiologist, I felt early in my career, as I came to understand the contribution of these behaviours, if I move more, that changes my physiology, that changes my expression, my mood. I was very clear in my own mind that if you read a, led a lifestyle that nourished your physiology, you'd feel well. Then many years in clinical practice, I found people who controlled their lifestyle to the minutiae, hyperbaric oxygen chambers and IV vitamin infusions and perfect sleep cycling and circadian rhythm lighting and everything you could do, yet they still didn't function well. And you start to understand there are factors that affect our feeling far and above and beyond our biology. Now, bear in mind, some of the things I was doing was at the sharp end of global clinical practice. We were measuring everything, and yet the person was still presenting as dysfunctional. And then you come back to that question of, for me, where, where does this concept of spirituality align? It's this idea of purposefulness. You know, and, and we're seeing more and more of this, this idea that my state of well-being doesn't just come from a, a do I adhere to these behaviors, but you know, on Harry's example, I agree entirely. If you, if you optimize your physiology, you have the best chance to feel well, but it may not, it may not get you where you want to get to. Now that's discounting chronic or genetic and some other things that we don't want to be strung out by, by ignoring a particular population. But let's take the line of best fit. If someone is absent on purposefulness, it will manifest somehow. And that comes, that comes with age. You know, young people are sort of a big bag of stem cells full of hormones, full of testosterone, androgen hormones. Up until maybe 30, 35, you can sort of get away without looking up. In most cases, as we age and our physiology starts to degenerate, we, we have to work harder, but we also should start asking, what do I contribute? And in the work I've done over the years, and, and certainly similar with Harry, when we found people who have increased their sense of purpose, and that increase might be just to ask what it is, right? What am I contributing? You know, I'm doing all these things. I'm amassing great wealth and fortune. What am I contributing? And I've seen examples where people did something that was a little more altruistic and went outside of everything feeds me to, I'm going to do something good for someone else and expect nothing in return. I've seen people adopt philanthropy and I've seen their improvement in well-being akin to someone who, who started walking, who didn't walk, someone who started nourishing, who didn't nourish. And that challenges me because I can't measure it. So anything I can't measure, I freak out about what, what is it? Where is it? You know, what, what, which biological system is it? And we move into this idea that, look, Ayurvedic medicine, you know, pathways of, of ancient medicine have talked about energetic pathways that, look, if, I, if someone does an autopsy, I, I'm not qualified to do one, we won't find the biology of a meridian. We won't find the biology of energetics. But we know that certain things we do, be that connections through love, be that doing things for other people, fulfilling some of the basic needs of a human will make us feel better. And that won't always be through measuring the measurement of something, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. Harry, where do spiritual values fit for you? Incredibly highly. For me, the foundation of spirituality, of spiritual values are often found in the interconnections that I have with other human beings. Now, I'm not, I'm not a deeply religious person, although I, I would say I believe in God, but I definitely believe in you know, a, a higher being or, or power, probably because 
in a sentimental way, I want to feel like you know, after this life is over that there is something else. For me, spirituality is quite simple. You know, it's kind of it's kind of the energy of, of the earth, and I feel that when I when I go for a pint of beer with a friend I haven't seen for a very long time, when I play a round of golf with my dad and there's no one else around, and me and him are just chatting with each other, and when I pick my kids up and my arms skin on skin and, and sit down with them and they fall asleep on me, you know, those things are, are amazing to me and really what, what life is all about. And those things feed my soul. And, and one soul needs to be nourished. I think it's incredibly important to, to remember you know, why we're here. And I think what Ollie said is matching one's purpose and belief system with one's actions, what you do every day, leads to a, to a level of fulfillment that lots of people don't have. So I think having something in place to look after your physical health how much do you exercise, how much do you train, how much do you move, something in place to look after your body's ability to recover from those activities, something in place that looks after your nutrition and how you fuel your life, something in place that looks after you manage your soul, your energy, your, your happiness, you can call it spirituality, you can kind of call it whatever you like, it will be the four areas of life that I am very conscious I have a bit of a plan for. Sometimes it's around the goal for my dad and it makes me feel amazing. Sometimes it's walking on a beach with my wife or having a pint with Ollie and debating, debate, we, we support different football teams. So we have a bit of an argument about that sometimes. And sometimes, my friends, that's good for the soul. Huge insight from you both. And I'm, I'm putting myself in the shoes of the, of the person listening right now. And as, as a wrap up, I'd really want to know from the best in the business, what are your top three daily non-negotiables for your own health and well-being? A one, two, three from you both, please. Mine is I take a probiotic every morning. Number two is movement. I'm a massive fan of Matthew McConaughey, and I'm not going to do an impression of his accent because it's terrible, but he says, break a sweat every day. And I love that. And sometimes I do that in the sauna, not necessarily training, but break a sweat every day is a non-negotiable for me. And my last part will go back to the thing that we finished on now, which is once a week, I do something I love with someone that I love. Fantastic. Thank you. Ollie, you're one, two, three. Mine will be running, which is, uh, if not daily, weekly, it's my purge. Again, I don't run anything to do with fitness. I do running entirely for my psychological well-being. And I, I've got slower as I've aged and I've accepted that, which is crucial. I can see Harry grinning. I will, a bit like Harry's, do something you love with someone you love. I'll do something that, that is play every week. The single reason I had children is so I could just revert back to being a child again for these few years. So there'll be a game. I've booked a period of time out in my week where I'll do something that fits in the self-development aspect, be that a golf lesson, a tennis lesson, or uh, I go through fads. I learned improvised comedy, did other things that take me outside of my skill set and cause me to need to, to develop in some particular area. And then latterly, you know, boundaries for me is absolutely critical. You know, I, I'm similar to Harry, father to two, um, young children, you know, husband to, to a great wife. I preserve time where I do nothing but, but focus on them and that will be carved out deliberately at weeks. I, I don't leave my phone on any longer. When I'm with my family, I'm, I'm very much with them and those are non-negotiables. Absolute gold, gents. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Health to Wealth. Next time, you'll hear from Ali Burns, the CEO of Village Capital, a global venture capital firm that prioritizes businesses that are set up by people from diverse backgrounds who are traditionally overlooked when it comes to investment. You'll hear all about the work she's doing to open up access to investment to everybody. Please rate, review and follow Health to Wealth. You can find out more at healthtowealthbyacor.com.